Welcome, everyone, to Kingdom in Context. I'm Sean, and I'm joined by my lovely wife, Lindsay. Hey, guys. Shabbat shalom. And the, our unborn baby, Levi. It's growing. <laughs> so we're, we're all here, and we want to thank you for joining us today. We want to talk about the scriptures. This is our Sabbath fellowship. Please hold your questions until the end. That's when we do the questions. We don't do them at the beginning. And, um, and if possible, try to pay attention. <laughs> it's like in the live chat, if you're in the live chat, you know, try not to... Uh, steer people into conversations that are not directed towards like what we're actually talking about or the, the scriptures we're reading or, you know what I'm saying? It'd be like, um, it'd be like if we all came together and we were trying to read the scriptures and talk about them together. And then you started talking about how you needed work done on your car. Like it just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a distraction. So we appreciate you guys being respectful of, of the topic at hand and uh, allowing others in the live chat who are asking about the topic at hand to maintain that focus. So, um, we also want to thank everyone who's the mods and uh, because we, you guys are amazing. Um, I know that you're, you're not always able to make every, every show we get that, but the ones that do show up, um, for the different types of shows we do throughout the week, you guys are a huge uh, blessing to us because we understand that I make a lot of people mad. Um, and so therefore people come in the live chat and they start, you know, knee jerking and you guys do a wonderful job handling that. Yeah. So you guys are doing ministry, whether you know it or not, you guys are awesome. Um, same thing for all of our mods and our, our social media groups as well. Um, you guys are amazing. And, um, yeah, Lord willing in the future, you know, we could do something special for everybody or, you know, get all to get together somehow and have dinner. I don't know how, but people are all over the country, different countries. And so either way, you guys are amazing. Um, maybe at the wedding supper of the lamb, we'll all get together for dinner. <laughs> we'll definitely all be together for that, but I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you and I can travel in an RV someday and someday meet people. I wanted to say thank you to everyone who helped out with my sister's uh, fundraiser. <clears throat> As I talked about last week, her her car got stolen and crashed, and so she needed some help um, in a pinch because she only had liability insurance. And if you guys, as usual, went above and beyond. She has more than she needs um, to hopefully take care of the whole issue and just get her right back on the road. So just want to thank you guys for that. Really appreciate it. Yep, yep. Um so today, sweetie, we wanted to talk about the Testament of Benjamin. Yes. Yeah. We, we don't get to read from the Testament to Patriarchs very often, and um, but we should because, I mean, they're super impactful and they're super chocked full of instructions of wisdom, application. So for anyone that's not aware, the tes Testament of Twelve Patriarchs, which some people in the past have just referred to as the Testament of the Twelve uh, Tribes or the Testament, just they simplified it to the Testament. And it's it's all the uh, the brothers of of Israel, their father. So it's, sons of Israel. it's the sons of Israel, but they're all brothers and they're um, in the land of Goshen. And they're all kind of, you know, before they die, they wrote their last their last admonition and encouragement to their sons and grandsons. And it's an amazing concept because you get that that old man perspective on life. Yeah. But at the same time, it's full of wisdom. And they're talking about mistakes they made, good things they had done. They're 
complimenting their brothers on some of their brother's triumphs, but then also calling out some of their brother's mistakes. So you get this inner family dialogue that you don't get in the book of Genesis or Exodus. Yeah, what I love about it is, A, it's a lot like Jubilees in that it gives a whole bunch of details and backstory to the general reader's digest uh, that Genesis is of the history of the world and then the history of this family. <clears throat> but I also love that it it really does give you it gives more of a voice to each individual son of Israel because mm -hmm. we see a lot of them speak here and there throughout the narratives of their history, but we rarely get like an, an actual perspective directly from them and their testament of what their was life was like and the choices that they made and things they would do differently, things that they would <laughs> continue to do the correct way. So it's just a, it's just a really neat um, bit of context and perspective that a lot of people miss out on. Yeah. So we're excited to talk about the, a little bit from the Testament of Benjamin. It's a, it's a larger uh, Testament. We're not going to be able to read all of it, but we are going to start um, here in chapter three. Okay. <clears throat> so here in chapter three, now I'm going to kind of modernize it as I read it, because this is written in English of about 120 years ago. So I'm going to kind of modernize, modernize it as I go. Verse three or chapter three, verse one. Do you also, therefore, my children, love the Lord God of heaven and earth, keep his commandments, follow the example of the good and holy man, Joseph, and let your mind be unto good, even as you know me, for he that has in his mind right sees all things rightly. For you fear the Lord and love your neighbor. And even though the spirits of Beliar claim you to afflict you with every evil, Yet they shall not have dominion over you, even as they had not over Joseph, my brother. How many men wished to slay him, and God shielded him? For he that fears God and loves his neighbor cannot be smitten by the spirit of Beliar, being shielded by the fear of God. Nor can he be ruled over by the device of men or beasts, for he is helped by the Lord through the love which he has toward his neighbor. For Joseph also besought our father that he would pray for his brethren, that the Lord would not impute to them as sin whatever evil they had done unto him. And thus Jacob cried out, My good child, though you have prevailed over the bowels of your father Jacob, and he embraced him and kissed him for two hours, saying, In you shall be fulfilled the prophecy of heaven concerning the Lamb of God and the Savior of the world, and that a blameless one shall be delivered up for lawless men, and a sinless one shall die for ungodly men in the blood of the covenant for the salvation of the Gentiles and of Israel, and shall destroy Beliar and his servants. Okay, so there's quite a bit to discuss in this um, in this particular. One second, it's quite a bit to discuss in this particular chapter here. This is chapter three. Um, one of the things I wanted to point out that I think is amazing is um, a lot of people will make the claim that people that say that Satan's not real and unclean spirits are not real, will make this claim that well, show me in, in the Old Testament where where unclean spirits are. You only see them in the New Testament. Yeah. I'm like, well, what, what if the Old Testament wasn't just what Judaism declares it is? Right. What if it was this historical book as well, which is what ancient Israel used to have in their possession, which clearly talks about, look at verse three, fear the Lord, love your neighbor. Even the spirits of Beliar claim you to Ill, to afflict you with every evil, yet they shall have no dominion over you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, it appears that in their effort to remove books that highly focused on angels, there also probably was a motive to remove books that focused on and mentioned demons, That's spirits. Right. <clears throat> yeah, well, especially if um, 
Let me find this real quick. I'll go to the canon real quick and I'm going to find a, a verse. Since you're not going to teach about angels and you're going to basically pretend they don't exist. You're going to need to pretend that demons don't exist either because those are the product of fallen angels. That's right. With women, so. That's right. Um, and this, this sentiment of no angels and no demons, no Satan, um, or no bad angels, no demons, no Satan, that, that persisted even into, um, uh, what's his name? Not Aquinas. That was, the, it was the fourth century, Augustine, who also declared that Genesis six was just talking about the, you know, the unrighteous sons of, of Cain versus the righteous sons of Seth and gave a, what he felt was justification for dismissing the idea of the Nephilim and the unclean spirits. But uh, if we look real quick here, this was a, a longstanding belief that, um, not just, this was the, um, here we go, getting all this sorted here. So here, if you see in verse 7 of Acts 23, it says, As soon as he had said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. But the Sadducees say that there is neither a resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits. Nope. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So there was, and remember guys, the Sadducees are the ones who were the scribes and the priests. They, yeah. they carried on the, the scrolls, which the early Christians would have then picked up and tried to decipher. So of course, if the Pharisees, if the Sadducees are the ones in, at the later end of the first century AD telling everyone around, Hey, we've already closed the canon and we only put these books in and they left out the Testament or the Testament 12 patriarchs. Well then of course, yeah, of, of course they, they get to push this narrative that there's no unclean spirits. It's, Man, it's really kind of wicked, to be honest. It's exactly what Satan would want people to do. They would want people to leave these books out and not believe that he's really an, an angel, not believe he's really an entity, not believe he ha really has a whole slew of spirits under his command, you know, out there trying to tempt us and lead us astray. I mean, it's it's a brilliant plan, really, unfortunately can't get this mic any closer guys put a one in the chat if you can hear my wife uh, on the mic very well if her audio is coming through okay i'll lose my breath if i have to well check my voice yeah, too much <laughs> otherwise i'm going to scoot you forward so but, okay. but we'll have to we'll turn the camera off and everything but um so just put a one in the chat if you can hear my wife speaking clearly um in the mic because i'm closer to it than she is but okay so basically let's uh we'll put this back on screen uh what stuck out to you in this passage sweetie uh, well, there's a lot, so much here. Um, a lot, right? I mean, it's just awesome how he's, you know, directly telling them to keep the commandments, talking about fearing the Lord, loving your neighbor. Um, and then how he's saying, um, even though the spirits of Belial claim to afflict you with afflict you with every evil, yet they shall not have dominion over you. I mean, that's echoed later in the New Testament where is it Paul who says, resist the devil and he will flee from you? That's no, it. James 4, James. 7. Yeah. Submit and yourself you, to and, God, resist the devil, and he will flee from yeah, you. Yeah. And how do we resist the devil? We submit ourselves to God. How do we submit ourselves to God? We do the we commandments. We do his commandments. I also like how towards the end it talks about um, salvation of the Gentiles. Because that's another big thing that it seems like Judaism does not like to, definitely at that time, and it seems still at this time, um, they don't want to share that salvation with the Gentiles. They don't want they don't want Gentiles, quote unquote, converting and, you know, becoming part of the covenant. Yeah. So to me, that's just another strike against this book for that group of people who would have been deciding 
Oh, we, yeah, we don't the, want to put that in. <laughs> yeah, the Sadducees, the extremely biased and prejudicial Sadducees um, pertaining to Judaism, yeah. because they 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 did not view converts into Israel as being grafted in fully. Right. So they had uh, they they viewed them as a different class. <clears throat> yeah. And um and so it's just yeah. It's, it's pretty it's racist. Not cool. It's very much like Islam actually, because Islam views the converts as truly not being unless you're born in a certain race. Some I know there's different branches of Islam, but. Um, from what I understood from the Saudi Islam branch is that um, even if you convert, you're, you're technically, if you're not born Arabic, you're, you're technically not, you're hmm. just a convert converter, hmm. you know, I haven't known that from the Muslims I've known, but most of them haven't been Saudi. So yeah. I could see that being a, a different, and branch. I can't remember if Saudis are Sunni or Shiite. I can't remember <laughs> what, what denomination they are, but so basically, um, yeah. Now, now here's the thing I want to point out to people. Some, some people will claim historians will claim that the things in the brackets were added by other people over time. Okay. After Christ. Okay. But let's just, let's just play, let's just play along and say that that's correct. I don't see any proof of that anywhere, but let's just say that's correct. Look at the rest of the statement. The one thing's not in brackets. I'll read what's not in the brackets. Okay. In you shall be fulfilled the prophecy of heaven that a blameless one shall be delivered up for lawless men and a sinless one shall die for ungodly men. Yeah. I mean, it's where, the same. Well, but quick question though. Quick question. Where is that? Where is that in, in the time of, of the children of Israel in Goshen? So this is between Genesis and Exodus. Where's that prophecy? I'm just yeah, putting it out there for anyone in the chat as well. Like think about what's being said here in the timing, the context of when this is being said. So this is Benjamin on his deathbed in the land of Goshen before the Exodus. So between Genesis 50 and Exodus chapter 1, this is the timeline of this particular passage we're reading. And he says, And you shall be fulfilled the prophecy of heaven, that a blameless one should be delivered up for lawless men, and a sinless one shall die for ungodly men. So not only do they understand what the words law and blameless and sinless mean already, but there's a prophecy about somebody that's going to be blameless who dies when ungodly men should be dying. Yeah. Right. So where, what books and prophecies he reading this from? It's not Genesis. It's not Exodus. Well, wouldn't it be Enoch? That's right. He's going to mention Enoch a little bit in further chapters down. So just for everyone out there listening, guys, they had the books of Enoch and Noah in their possession in Goshen. And uh, here's just another historical validation to that concept. I think that's one of the things that frustrates me about how many Christians want to go against these books as well, because they don't seem to understand that these books further support Jesus as the Messiah. Yeah. And especially in our crowd, in the Torah crowd, where there are a lot of issues with anti-missionary arguments coming around and trying to pull people away from faith in Yeshua as the Messiah. It's so easy for them to say, oh, that's not a prophecy is nowhere. That's not written anywhere in the Tanakh. That's not written anywhere in the five books of the Torah. And it's like with these other books that they clearly had back then, those things were written. Right. That's right. <laughs> they just literally left them out. And yeah. Then they said, and then they can turn around and say, oh, where is it? Look, it's not in there. It's look. not in there. Where is it? <laughs> I'm like, dude, are we playing this game? We're, we are crazy. We're having to play this game. And because the modern <clears throat> modern believers in so many Protestant based churches are, are believe. Um, this idea that Judaism got to decide what books are scripture and what's not, yeah. which is crazy to me. Yeah. Um, that they just, they didn't think, Oh, well then we, well, there's not a lot of evidence for Christ in the old Testament. 
but but we we can go on Isaiah fifty three. We can go on, you know, they so then they go to the the ones that are brought up. You know yeah. what I mean? But there's some more clear ones in Enoch and the Testament of twelve patriarchs. I mean, it's yeah. super super clear. It's very super very. Clear. It's even all the way down to the veil being rent in the yeah. temple. I mean, even all those kinds of things that people now because they don't have this book. They're like, oh, they speculate about oh, what that really meant. And I'm like, it, it was actually written right there. That was a prophecy that was fulfilled. So, yeah. Well, chapter four. Do you want to read or do you want me to read? Oh, you go okay. ahead. I'm going to okay. run out of breath. <laughs> okay. Chapter four. See you, therefore, my children, the end of the good man. Be followers of his compassion, therefore. Still speaking about Christ. With a good mind that you also may wear crowns of glory, guys. This is Philippians chapter three. This is amazing. This is this is Revelation chapter 3 also. This is Second Ezra chapter 2. Christ is crowning us at the resurrection with crowns of glory. For the good man has not a dark eye, for he shows mercy to all men. Now here's where our interesting part, because we talked about this a couple weeks ago. For he shows mercy to all men, even though they be sinners. Yeah. It cracks me up like this. It almost sounds like pirate language. I be sinners. <laughs> but... Um, so basically he's saying, look, the good man shows mercy, even though they are sinners. And though they devise with evil intent concerning him, by doing good, he overcomes evil, being shielded by God. So th this is something where a lot of people will, will try to make the case. Um, oh, you you know, if people are being wicked, you don't have to be nice to them. It just wants you to be good to the body of believers. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They just, just show love and mercy to the body of believers. But you, you don't have to forgive and show love and mercy to people that are not of the faith. Yeah. Um, or if they don't, if they're not good to you and show a repentant heart to you, you don't have to be merciful to them. Yeah. But that's just not, that is not the Torah. That is not the heart of God being shown as no, no, no. Even Christ knew Judas was going to betray him from the moment he let him follow him as a disciple. Right. He knew Judas was going to betray him at the, at the, at the, uh, the last supper, Christ is washing Judas's feet, knowing in a few minutes He's going to go betray him. Yeah. But that is, that's tough. That's, I wish, I mean, I, I wish I could say I could have that kind of love for someone who I know is going to betray me. I practice that kind of heart. I don't think I have it all the time yeah. and I don't think I have it perfect, but I definitely practice it when I invite Trinitarians onto my show. <laughs> yeah. It's a, definitely a lower level. Um, you know, it's lower rung on that ladder, but <laughs> For when sure. I, I mean, you know, know they're going to come on and condemn you. They're going to come on and, and try to admonish me and condemn me to hell. Um, but I still try to be nice to them. And I tr I still try to, to show love. But I'm not always perfect at it. So we'll see. All right. So basically, um, this to me is just amazing. You know, and though they devise with evil intent concerning him by doing good, he overcomes evil, being shielded by God. Now, this is consistent with, you know, Proverbs 25 and Romans 12 that, you know, do good unto your enemies. Matthew 5, right. do good unto your enemies, right. um, even though they may persecute you, even though they hate you, do good unto them. Right. And love the righteous as his own soul. If anyone is glorified. Now, I just want to make a quick caveat because we have discussed this in the past multiple times. You don't have to do good to someone that is literally threatening your life or your family's life or whatnot. Like if they're trying to to steal from you, to kill you. Um, or to destroy something you have, you do have a Torah-based right to protect and defend yourself. So there's a different caveat of application. Unfortunately, you have a lot of certain types of churches over the years have preached this idea that, you know, just, oh, if they're going to come in and put a noose around your neck and take you to the guillotine, just just be happy. Just be happy. Yeah. Never fight back. 
And I'm like, okay, well, hang on now. <laughs> There's some context here. Because when they do that, by the way, throughout all of history, when they come in and they take a people group off to the slaughter, they steal their property and they usually do horrific things to the ladies and the children that are left behind. So this is not a situation of just simple persecution, right? This, this always turns into a scuffle of unrighteous men killing, stealing, and destroying through horrific means. And this is where we've talked in the past about being able to defend yourself. And there's a ton of scriptural precedent and, and direct scriptures that talk about being able to defend yourself. So we just want to throw that out there. That's not the point of today's conversation. I just want to make sure there's no confusion there. Uh, verse four, and he loves the righteous as his own soul. If anyone is glorified, he envies him not. If anyone is enriched, he's not jealous. If anyone is valiant, he praises him. The virtuous man, he lauds. On the poor man, he has mercy. On the weak, he has compassion. Unto God, he sings praises. As for him who has the fear of God, he protects him as with a shield. Him that loves God, he helps. Him that rejects the Most High, he admonishes and turns back. That means causes him to repent, mm -hmm. right? This is consistent with Malachi 2, 4 through 7. And him that has the grace of a good spirit, he loves as his own soul. Pretty awesome, right? Yeah. Pretty awesome. So it seems like Benjamin, we don't get, do we get any words from Benjamin in Genesis other than like when he was left with Joseph and then like we get like one or two lines in all of, of yeah, Genesis um, from Benjamin. Yeah, we definitely don't see him speak a whole lot. He doesn't have too many speaking parts on in this play <laughs> yeah so here we have amazing wisdom pouring out of the youngest son benjamin and uh and he seems to be a fan of his older brother joseph yeah now benjamin remind me he's the very last the he's last. the 12th yeah he's right? the one okay. that rachel i believe died he's mm. the baby yeah he's the baby of the family okay um and remember joseph uh when they brought all the brothers down asking for food he said you know he took simeon for a year first but then they gave simeon back and he took joseph so that he could compel took benjamin he excuse me he took benjamin so that he could compel the other brothers to bring jacob down so right. he could get them all together in the same room um so that was verse four is there anything you want to make comments on in, in chapter four i think we commented a lot while okay. we were reading through it all right cool i just didn't want to skip anything i just don't want to you know not give you an opportunity so chapter five it says if i therefore you also have a good mind excuse me i, I read that wrong verse one is if therefore you also have a good mind then will both wicked men be at peace with you and the profligate will reverence you and turn unto good and the covetous will not only cease from their inordinate, inordinate desire but even give the objects of their covetousness to them that are afflicted if you do well even the unclean spirits will flee from you and the beasts will dread you. I mean, think about Genesis 4. What is, you know, the, the angel tells, you know, the word of the Lord through the angel tells uh, Cain, if you if you, if you you do not do well, you know, sin is crashing out the door, yeah. but if you do well, you, things will go well, yeah. right? So this there's a clear, quick reference or qu synonymous application of this idea of doing well and doing good is keeping the commandments of God. Right. Very simple. Um, synonymous. So... And, and this is how you get unclean spirits to flee from you. So just FYI out there, anyone watching, you feel oppressed, tormented, um, you feel like there's some lingering things in your life, start practicing the commandments of God, applying them in your life wherever you can, okay? All the ones that apply to you in the scripture, this, this requires you to diligently seek after the Father's face by reading his word, checking out the commandments that would apply to you, 
So it means you're going to have to take some critical thought to these commandments and think, okay, does this one apply? No, this one's talking about priests. Okay, so this one, apply. I'm not a priest in the temple. It doesn't apply to me. But, okay, but you may be able to glean the heart, a good heart of a good attitude from something happening there. But as far as practically obeying the commandments in your life, just start reading the scriptures and there's a ton of them everywhere. They're pouring, they're pouring in there everywhere. That how to live life in a good way. And, as, and when you start practicing that on a regular basis, unclean spirits will flee from your life. So this is a, hopefully a good encouragement to folks. Um, verse 3. Um, verse, yeah, let's, right I'll here, so keep going from off. verse 3. If you do well, even the unclean spirits will flee from you and the beast will dread you. For where there is reverence for good works and light in the mind, even darkness flees away from him. For if anyone does violence to a holy man, he repents. For the holy man is merciful to his reviler and holds his peace. And if anyone betrays a righteous man, the righteous man prays, though for a little while he's humbled, yet not long after he appears far more glorious, as was Joseph, my brother. So, I mean, Joseph, he obviously, Benjamin is using Joseph as an example, right? Because he was put on, put in jail, he was falsely accused, all this stuff, but then he was glorified. Right. Yeah, I think one of the coolest things about this collection of books um, is giving you, giving us a full picture of how truly significant this whole situation with Joseph was, because obviously we know it's hugely significant just from Genesis. I mean, we're, we, we see the pro prophecy being fulfilled. We see God working through him. We see the fruits of the spirit going through him. But as far as how that deeply deeply affected all his brothers and that they went to their graves speaking about what they did to joseph and how joseph responded in all of that and i just it's just a perspective that you don't get in That's genesis right. you know i mean we everybody knows the <clears throat> the famous story of joseph and the parallels between him and yeshua and between his reign under the pharaoh and yeshua's right. millennial reign those kind of things but it is interesting. If you go read this full collection of these 12 Testaments, you'll see they all, all these brothers point back to Joseph and yeah. that whole, that, that was such a significant um, act in everybody's life. Think about it for a minute. So I just, we've probably have all experienced this perspective where you're having a tiff with somebody, but that person is either already in a position of authority or then is later put in a position of authority over you in whatever way. And so it, it forces you to relax your anger enough to be able to think straight again. And then once you're thinking straight again, you'll naturally be able to recognize good traits, good tendencies, good behaviors coming from the person that's in authority over you. And this is, I believe, what was forced upon the brothers. They were in fear, according to Genesis. Yeah. They were in fear that, yeah. that he was going to tell Jacob what they had done, that he was going to kill them for what they had done because he's now in authority. But instead, he just shows them love and mercy the whole time. It says he didn't even mention it to them. Right. Right. So he just was like, oh, that was I am bringing up old stuff. That's old stuff. You know what I mean? So let's just move on. It's a new day. Um, we'll fight about something different in the future. Look, look what you meant for evil. God did for me for good. Yeah. Right. And literally, Joseph is saving the entire known world at the time with his seven-year plan to stockpile food from this massive drought they were having. So this is an amazing concept um, that that the brothers were forced, even though at one point they humbled, like this verse says, they humbled Joseph. They did evil to a righteous man and they humbled Joseph. Yet not long after he was then glorified, he was put in a position of, of honor um, to where they had to be in sub submission to him. 
right. even though they were older than him. Right. Right. And so, and if there was any lingering bad feelings, they had no, no, uh, justified opportunity legally or, or probably even through manpower to actually come out, you know, to, to actually do anything still. Right. Right. Um, it's just a fascinating concept about the father worked all this so that Joseph could be protected, even from his own brothers who were deceived with anger. Yeah. As well as unclean spirits, as well as the enemies of Egypt, the the, the adulterous woman, the, the people in the jails, the, all this other stuff. So like he was being protected from all this stuff um, because he just kept doing the commandments all the time. You know, right. it's that simple. So chapter six. The inclination of the good man is not the power of the deceit of the spirit of Beliar. Excuse me. The inclination of the good man is not in the power of the deceit of the spirit of Beliar. For the angel of peace guides his soul, and he gazes not passionately upon corruptible things, nor gathers together riches through a desire of pleasure. He delights not in pleasure. Um, this is, I think, what Paul references in 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 his epistle letters talking about the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Verse three, nor does he gather together riches with the desire of pleasure. He delights not in pleasure. He grieves for not his neighbor. He sateth not himself with luxuries. He erreth not in the uplifting of his eyes. The Lord is his portion. The good inclination receives not glory nor dishonor from men. And it knows not any guile or lie or fighting or reviling. For the Lord dwells in him and lights up his soul, and he rejoices towards all men always. The good mind has not two tongues. Sounds like the book of James, chapter one. Yeah. Of blessing and cursing, or excuse me, chapter three of James. Um, the good mind has not two tongues of blessing and of cursing, of contumely and of honor, of sorrow and of joy, of quietness and of confusion, of hypocrisy and of truth, of poverty and of wealth. But it has one disposition uncorrupt and pure concerning all men. It has no double sight nor double hearing for in everything which he does or speaks or sees, he knows that the Lord looks on his soul and he cleanses his mind that he may not be condemned by men as well as by God. And in like manner, the works of Beliar are twofold and there is no singleness in them. Yeah, double speak. Double speak is definitely the liar's, the liar's main. It is right. Main shtick. Yeah, that um, big brother. I mean, how when you understand the angels were created first and they're considered our brethren. Yeah. You look at the the oppression of the 1984 Big Brother. Yeah. And it's full of double speak. Yes. For for nothing but control and to get you away from God and to worship the state. Yeah. Um, like it's just. <laughs> Oh, it's so obvious. It's so super obvious. But yeah, this is an interesting chapter. Um, I don't really have a lot to say. I think, I think it's kind of some of it's kind of self-evident. Yeah, it's like a it's like a mini chapter of Proverbs yeah. condensed into a few sentences. <laughs> yeah, just being being a, a attitude of singleness, right? Where yeah. you're not you're not like you're not like saying to someone, "Oh man, yeah, that's great," but meanwhile you're plotting behind the scenes towards them, right? You just have a single heart of love towards them. Yeah, I think I would say that, unfortunately, we see a lot of this in the Christian body itself of speaking out of both sides of your mouth, so to speak, where they will bless their brethren with, in one breath and then curse them in the next breath. Yeah, it's uh, based on differences in doctrine of all things. So, yeah, not differences on whether. Well, sometimes those, that difference in doctrine applies directly to a discipleship, which is like the commandments mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. And 
that's why some people are annoyed by it, but that's why Sean and I are very careful not to dictate who's going to enter the kingdom and who's not, who's truly a brother in the faith and who's not. I mean, we can, we can talk about black and white things about just blatantly following a false religion and rejecting the God of the Bible. But when it comes to actually people in the Christian body who profess faith in Christ, Sean and I are not, we are not comfortable just jumping on that judgment seat and saying, Oh, you're out, you're out, you're out, you're in and you're out. Like we just, yeah, we, we don't do that based on the Torah, based on the Trinity, based on, um, you know, just name the doctrine. Um, Sean and I just, we don't want to engage in that blessing and cursing with our mouth, you know? Yeah. To us, that's a form of wickedness. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's taking upon it yourself a, a seat of judgment that's not given to you. Yeah, I fear the Father way too much to put myself in that position. And honestly, it's a kick in the teeth to Yeshua himself, who is your high priest and yeah. you're the one discipling each person through the Holy Spirit. He has access to, to lead them and guide yeah. them, as you know it says. Yeah, that's um, his job. That's way above yeah. our pay grade. Yeah, <laughs> he who began a work, good work in you is faithful and just to complete it, right? So yeah. like, why would you claim that he can't complete that work? Oh, they, they're, they're wrong on something. Oh, they're, they're doomed. They'll never, yeah. Christ will never correct them on that. Yeah. Christ will never reveal it to them or never lead them to further study. They're doomed. You know what I mean? Like that, that attitude is extremely wicked. Yeah. I mean, they just completely ignore the discipleship of Christ and uh, stand in his seat of judgment. So we've also got chapter seven. Chapter seven says, therefore, my children, I tell you, flee the malice of Beliar, for he gives a sword to them that obey him. And the sword is the mother of seven evils. First, the mind conceives through Beliar, and first, there is bloodshed. Second, there's ruin. Third, there's tribulation. Fourth, there's exile. Fifth, there's dearth. Does anyone know what that is? You know what the dearth is? You want to look that up? Um, sixth is panic, and seventh is destruction. Uh, a scarcity or a lack of something. Okay. So famine. Famine, yeah. Yeah. Therefore was Cain also delivered over to seven vengeances by God, for in every hundred years the Lord brought one plague upon him. And when he was two hundred years old, he began to suffer, and in the nine hundredth year he was destroyed. For on account of Abel, his brother, with all the evils was he judged, but Lamech with seventy times seven. Because forever those who are like Cain in envy and hatred of brethren shall be punished with the same judgment. It's pretty rough. It is interesting, though, because... Oh, sorry, I don't know what I just did. Sorry in so many of these books, you read through them and you're like, hey, that's where Jesus got that saying from. <laughs> this 70 times 7. I don't think I've seen that in any of the uh, official closed canon of the Old Testament, right? Um, well, I think he's referencing uh, Genesis chapter 4 and uh, with, with Cain. Does it say 70 times 7 um, in Genesis chapter 4? Lamech. No, it's about Lamech. Yeah, it does. Let me go to it real quick. Okay. Genesis 4. I can't remember the exact verse. It's like 419. Um, Just to answer a question in the chat, you can know the difference between good and evil, and you can determine something to be evil uh, without looking at another Christian and saying, you're going to the second death because you believe differently than me. So the, those are two completely different things. That's why we can talk about false religions and rejecting the father completely and talking about that being evil and wicked and deception. And we can also say, 
my brother over here believes, you know, this whatever doctrine from their church that they're in, and we're not going to condemn them for that and call them evil for it. It's that simple. So, so here's what you're asking about, and this is uh, Genesis 424, and this is Lamech. Okay. He says if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77 fold. Interesting. But if you go to the, um, the Septuagint, he <coughs> said uh, 70 times seven. Okay. Interesting. Oh, so he was. Quoting the Septuagint while well, using a phrase from the Septuagint. Yeah, so. That's another thing that happens with anti-missionaries is they'll say, oh, this New Testament author is saying that they're quoting from the Old Testament, but this isn't in the Old Testament, but it's actually in the Septuagint version yeah. of the Old Testament. It's another, another, another mind trick. <laughs> little way they try to fool people. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, just, I mean, just driving home the point that you've got to have love for people. Obviously, he opens up in chapter three talking about love for your neighbor, but then he, then he like hones it in on, now, if wicked people are doing evil to you, show mercy to them. But a righteous man loves someone who has good inclinations as he loves his own soul. Yeah. Which is like, you know, you, especially, and then of course, giving, making it even more immediate, which is your family, right? So if you, if you were going to treat your family with hatred and envy, you're going to have serious issues, you know, um, cause it's your own brother, it's your own flesh. Yeah. So this is where, yeah, it's, I mean, we see the same thing with Jacob and Esau, right. You know, yeah. Esau couldn't get, couldn't let this go. And he finally dies in an unrighteous state. He right. can never forgive his brother. Truly. He yeah. tries to come make war against his brother, you know, and Genesis is Jubilee's 37, I believe. Yeah. He's got the epitome of a hardened heart. Yeah. So in verse eight, he says, and do you, my children, flee evil doing, envy, hatred of brethren, cleave to goodness and love. Now, keep in mind, folks, he's talking to his children and grandchildren, um, kind of at his deathbed, if you will. He that has a pure mind and love, look not after a woman with a view to fornication, for he has no defilement in his heart because the spirit of God rests on him. For as the sun is not defiled by shining on dung and mire, but rather dries up and drives away the evil smell. So also the pure mind, though encompassed by the defilements of earth, rather cleanses them and is not itself defiled. So he's basically saying you can maintain a good mindset even amongst an evil generation. Yeah. Okay. So Joseph did. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Joseph wasn't perfect. He wasn't Christ. And he did. Same thing with, um, you know, other people mentioned in the scriptures. Most of the righteous prophets did, even though they weren't uh, Christ. Right. So. This is the idea is that uh, it is possible to you to actually do good and, and the father will commend you for doing good. I mean, how do you think you're storing treasures in heaven? It's not for giving lip service to him and saying you believe in Calvinism or, or the Trinity, right? It's because you have loving kindness that you exhibit to people on the earth with the heart of forgiveness and the father sees all of our behaviors. And so it's, what's that? Okay. Just, uh, a person in the chat. So, yeah, I just want to encourage <laughs> folks that this is, you know, he's he's just driving home the idea of what he initially he's expounding, if you will, on what we saw at the beginning, the first statement of chapter three, which is fear the Lord and keep the commandments. Yeah. And now he's explaining how to do that. Okay. And these are some practical ways from a heart stance, from a mindset, uh, how we practically interact with people in different ways. And even if we're getting persecution or even if we're living like like Lot living amongst an evil city, right? right? Let's, so anyway, so chapter nine says, and I believe that there are also, there will be also evil doings among you from the words of Enoch, the righteous. So he's, he's getting prophecy, by the way, from Enoch. 
And unfortunately, I don't feel like it's the same collection of scrolls that we call Enoch and Noah, which is called First Enoch. It's not the same collection because we have what we have is First Enoch is uh, fragments. I say this a lot, and I'll probably have to say it a lot in the future for those of you that are regular, regular uh, viewers. We really appreciate you guys being so patient when I when I repeat myself on things. But a lot of people are unaware that the Book of Enoch is a collection of six different scrolls, and those scrolls. Some of them are, are Enoch, and one of them, I believe, is attributed to Noah. And that's what they call First Enoch. But those scrolls within themselves are not complete scrolls. They're fragments. So it's it's my deduction that the, test, the mentions of First Enoch in the Testament of Twelve Patriarchs is the writings of Enoch. It's not the compilation of fragmented scrolls we have today called First Enoch. But they had the actual unfragmented fullness of the books of Noah and Enoch, as Jubilees mentions. So they probably had a lot more prophecies about different concepts than which they're alluding to. Right. Right. Which we don't see in the in the canon of 66. And we don't even see in the book of Enoch itself because, again, they're fragmented. So it's there's a lot here to, to consider. So he says outright he's he's learned that his. Benjaminite descendants, there will be evil doings found among them from the words of Enoch the righteous, that you shall commit fornication with the fornication of Sodom and shall perish all except a few and shall renew your wanton deeds with women and the kingdom of the Lord shall not be among you for straight away he shall take it away. Now, real quick, um, this will be the last chapter we read. So I'm going to stop and talk about this in just a little bit. Okay. Do you, do you know the prophecy he's referring to? Do you know where that fulfillment is in the canon? Because it's fulfilled in the canon. Is it when they're scattered? No. No, I'll show you real quick. Remember this? The Civil War the Benjamin oh, started? Oh, yes. Gosh, yeah. 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 Remember what they did to the concubine? Yep. They, they uh, abused her and then left her for dead yep. at the priest's door. <laughs> And then this caused um, this caused them to rally war. rally all the other clans yeah. and uh, all the other tribes that they would come attack the Benjaminites. Yeah, and um, and it caused a massive civil war. And the Benjaminites lost uh, what was it? What they lose like twenty five thousand men? Oh, yeah, big something like portion. that. Um, because they, I mean, it was a massive civil war. So Benjamin lost. Um, they weren't a big tribe to begin with. But they lost 25,000 men. Yeah. And this was a huge deal. And then they've never been a big tribe since then. So this is where, you know, we've got in Goshen, way before Judges 19. Yeah. Hundreds of years before Judges 19, you have a prophecy that Benjamin is claiming Enoch. Already already talked about this. Yeah. And already prophesied about this. and um, And that they did act like Sodom. What did they do to the concubine girl? Yeah. The same thing the Sodomites right. want to do to the angel, yeah. right? Um, and it caused a massive civil war, and their portion was taken away from them. They lost. And so and the temple was still going to be in their portion, So, but it's just on the border between Judah and Benjamin, right. as far as Jerusalem and the city of David and things like that. So it says uh, in verse 2, Nevertheless, the temple of God shall be in your portion, and the last temple shall be far more glorious than the first. Because there's only two temples, guys. I know a lot of people, I'm, I'm going to stop real quick and make this statement. I know a lot of people like to say that the second temple literature, guys, it was the same temple. The one that Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt 
It's the same temple. Yes, Herod may have made some modifications to it, but it was the same temple. It was rebuilt. The second temple from God, not from Herod and him deciding, I want to do some remodeling. What is that show on TLC where they do like house makeovers? Anyway, extreme so, home makeover. Extreme home, yes. Anyway, so at, at one point, Herod pulled aside the truck and you saw a brand new temple, right? So the whole concept is like, <laughs> but it but it was built on the one Nehemiah and Ezra built, which was still the Temple of Solomon, the first temple. It wasn't the second temple from God. So the Solomon's temple is the first temple from God. The second temple, according to Enoch and, and these references here, is going to be the one that's a, literally coming from the heaven above, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly temple coming down to the earth. So there was the tent of tabernacle. Then there was a standing temple given plans to David, and then Solomon executed on that, rebuilt by Nehemiah and Ezra, refashioned by Herod, but or one of the Herodian leaders. But this is not this is not the one promised, the big greater temple promised from Enoch and the one being referenced by Benjamin that would come down out of heaven from God. Okay, that's the New Jerusalem, and inside that New Jerusalem is a massive uh, sanctuary to Yahweh. And so this is a this is the difference I should say in that type of passage, and just to get you an idea. So people always ask us all the time about a third temple, and we I try not to nitpick and go into that whole conversation I yeah. just did, and I just say no, no. We any I usually try to put it like this: any additional temple that the Father ordains is coming out of heaven, and it's not built by men, right? Right? Because it's technically not going to be a third temple; it's going to be the second one, the one that's prophesied in Enoch and in the Testaments, but. So anyway, just so you can understand the idea there, um, verse two, nevertheless, the temple of God shall be in your portion and the last temple shall be far more glorious than the first and the 12 tribes shall be gathered together there. Well, it's amazing, right? Did that happen with Nezra and Nehemiah? Uh, no. Okay. Because because no. Samaria was now in place and uh, the Greeks had come in and they, they still weren't all regathered. Okay. So they were poured. They would come in from time to time. It, it, people from different countries that were scattered for the feast days, but they were not gathered in the land again, which only happens at the, the resurrection. All the Gentiles. So both they're gathered together, the 12 tribes and all the Gentiles. Right. This is a millennial reign context. Yeah. Until the most high shall send forth his salvation and the visitation of an only begotten prophet. How, how amazing is that? Right. Here we got an only begotten prophet. Now it's using very specific language. Because there's only this, this idea of begotten is that you're uniquely created. We see that with Yeshua being born of a virgin. He shall enter into the first temple. The second temple, the first temple, the third temple. Which one's he entering into? He shall enter into the first temple, and there shall the Lord in, uh, be treated with outrage, and he shall be lifted up upon a tree. And the veil of the temple shall be rent, and the Spirit of God shall pass on to the Gentiles as fire poured forth. And he shall ascend from Hades and shall pass from earth into heaven. And I know how lowly he shall be upon the earth and how glorious in heaven. It's pretty amazing, man. Yeah. This is this is like, I mean, where what other, we also get in the Testament of Dan, I believe. Or no, no, in the Testament of Levi. Yeah. But here's the second mention in the Testament of Benjamin about the veil being rent at Yeshua's death. Yep. So you think they would want to leave this out of the canon? You think the Sadducees would want to leave this out of the canon after Christ had risen and they're making converts everywhere? I mean, this sounds pretty obvious to me. Yeah. Like if you need a reason to, oh man, which books do we got to get rid of? Oh yeah. So that Testaments, the Testaments book, like it emphatically talks about Yeshua becoming the priest and, uh, and all the things that, that are witnessed today that's already happened. Like all these prophecies came true. Yeah. 
Yeah. And again, this is another example of an argument that's used by anti-missionaries. They'll come around and say, oh, you know, the, in the Gospels, it talks about, you know, Jesus being raised according to the scriptures. That's not it. There's no prophecy of Messiah being killed and resurrected in the Old Testament. I mean, it's it just gives all this ammunition to these people who are fighting directly against the spirit of Christ and trying to pull people away from belief and faith in him. Um disregarding these books, uh, you know, taking their side on it and saying, oh yeah, these books aren't scripture. They don't mean anything. It just, it just gives them more ammunition for their arguments against Jesus being the Messiah. That's right. <clears throat> so then in this passage that you just quoted, yeah, you think he's, what scriptures do you think he's talking about? I would say the many ones in the, first of all, the Testament of the 12 patriarchs, it talks directly about him dying and being resurrected. That's right. <clears throat> You know, we now Sean, it's Sean is well versed in the 66 and he can make a case for Christ being prophesied Psalm through the 16, Old Testament 10, without these books. But Isaiah what I'm 53. saying is these books are very clear and right. they don't mince any words. And there really is no debate as far as, oh, well, that doesn't really mean that. Right. I mean, people will say that no matter what the words say and they just don't want to believe it. But um, so I don't want to diminish anyone's confidence in the 66 that we have, because as you've seen, if you watch our channel long enough, you know, you can be competent in those 66 and make your case just from those books. But I just it's for me, I don't understand the the, the Christians fighting against some of these books that were left out right. because they give us more. They give us more prophecies to show were revealed. They give us more validation for you know, the, the divine inspiration of what we call Holy scripture. So. Yep. And, uh, as I showed recently, um, in my response to our brother, David, when he's talking about the book of Jubilees, um, Dead Sea Scroll professor, Rachel Eliar, Hebrew Maritas professor from Hebrew university in Jerusalem. Um, she claims that the, the Testament 12 tribes, which is what we're reading from Enoch and Jubilees that, that, that Rabbi Akiva, of the first century um, rabbis did view them as holy scriptures, but intentionally left them outside of their canon, their Old Testament canon, because of the calendar issue, the priestly mentions, and the angel mentions. Yeah. Again, what did we just read from Acts 23? The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The, the angels or spirits. Yeah. Like that's a huge deal. And then moving forward into the religions that developed or continued growing after Christ came. You have Judaism, which completely disregards any need for a priesthood now, where they're like, oh, you just do good deeds and you atone for yourself. And they just, the idea of priesthood is just wiped from their minds completely. Or you have the Catholic and Orthodox churches who took on their own form of a priesthood and said, oh, now we're the new priesthood. And we do these new things as priests, you know? Um, so I, I, when Sean and I first met five and a half going on six years ago, I can remember we were chatting on Facebook uh, messenger FaceTiming. And he said to me, you know, I feel like I need to study Leviticus more. Like I just, I just need to know that book better. And we talk about that all the time because as we both dove into that book more, and of course numbers, it's the priesthood of Yeshua became we were like, it was like this light went off, like, oh my gosh, this is, this is this major thing that we've been missing about his role 
as our Messiah. Now, I, when we first met, was one of those bride people. I thought, oh, he had to come and die so we could remarry him. Oh, th that was my big revelation at the time. Which, of course, Sean showed me many, plenty of scriptures that <laughs> caused that to fall apart. But it was like understanding his role as a priest, like literally a priest, and how priesthood is woven into the fabric of the Father's creation of human beings and how we interact with him. And it's even woven in the fabric of his own angels and how they interact with him. It was like the skeleton key that you could just put into the center of the book and turn. And all of a sudden, all these other things started to make sense because, oh my gosh, this is, this is what he came to do. He came to be our eternal perfect high priest. So I, Sean and I often talk about, <clears throat> we mentioned in passing that these books were left out because of the priesthood issue. And of course the angels in the calendar, but the priesthood is way bigger than I think people realize. Like it's not something to just be glazed over. I mean, there you have, you have these factions of people now who either have created their own priesthood. So of course they're going to want to poo poo any notion of Yeshua being a literal priest or there being a priesthood in heaven or priests before the Torah was given for the first time ever at Mount Sinai, or you're going to have the other group of people in Judaism who want to pretend like a priesthood isn't needed for your salvation because they, they deny the high priest. They're like, you know, no, none we, of them even talk about humanity needed a high priest to come for them. <laughs> do you remember last night we were watching that debate between um, Dr. Brown and uh, Corey Minor? Yeah. They're talking about uh, one saved, always saved right. versus the opposite. Um, and I, and I said to you like, oh, well, it seems like Corey's position is built upon his lack of understanding the priesthood yep. of Christ because he thinks that Christ had to die for this particular reason. And if, because this priesthood was going away, yeah, because that's yeah. what dispensation theology in mm -hmm. the Protestant churches teaches is that, that the priesthood went away. So therefore now you just trust in Christ and Christ isn't actually doing a job of priest in heaven. Like yeah. the scriptures say, they just say, Oh, well now it's just, you just trust in Christ. But instead with, without understanding the old Testament context and the definitions of what it means to have faith in Christ, like to, to have faith literally means you're discipling into that person who's teaching you and Christ in whom we are presented to spotless and blameless is a reference to you preparing your heart and your body to come before the priest of God who stands at the temple gateway. Like this was a, this was a concept. This is why she was called her high priest of yeah. the covenant. Um, and he's literally actively doing that job in heaven. But dispensation theology has taught mankind that because that all went away, this is why Christ had to come and die for you because that was going to go away. And now he just somehow atones to you in a different way, yeah. which they'll never define for you. They just say, oh, it's because he died on the cross. But that's never how, that's never how God defined atonement. Um, he defined it through his priesthood. He prophesied Yeshua become a priest. Yeshua lived, died, resurrected, and was given his priesthood. <laughs> and hence why Leviticus is such a, it's such a book of clarity for understanding how the father defines these terms, how right. the father defines atonement, you know, because atonement wasn't just the death of an animal and the spilling of blood. Atonement was the priest's job That's right. of going through that ritual and bringing the, the offering before him and slaughtering it in the proper way and all of that. That that whole thing was how atonement was created. It wasn't just the spilling of the blood. Otherwise, anyone could do it. And that's that was the once saved, always saved argument, which was, well, if the high priest gave made atonement for Israel once a year, well, then when the temple went away, how do you, we won't have atonement again? This is why Jesus did it on the cross. Right. And you're like, wait a minute. What happened on the cross? Exactly. Exactly. We know he died. But how does that have a spiritual implication? And if that was the final thing. 
why did he get resurrected and then given a priesthood and ascend to heaven and says he's ministering at the temple above? Because that's he continues to carry on the yearly atonement for all of Israel. Yeah, and this would be why all these people that we talk to in mainstream Christianity would have to deny that that heaven is a literal place, that there's a literal sanctuary up there. They would have to completely ignore the fact that Moses, everything that he made in the tabernacle was an exact copy of what he was shown in heaven. Because then the question naturally arises, okay, well, that means that all the tools that he made, right. the, that means that the grill that he made, that means that the, the boiling sea yeah. that he had constructed that that's all literally in heaven so this all ties together when sean was doing a debate the other night on the trinity they got into the topic of the priesthood in heaven and the trinitarians glaze over and are like we need to get back to the topic but that's what they don't understand is that this is all related if you don't think heaven is a literal physical place then you, you, your level of confusion on these terms and what they really mean leads you to a place where you just have to make up definitions for what they mean. You have to redefine, oh yeah, there's a sanctuary up there, but it's not literal. Oh uh, yeah, Moses was shown those things, but it was just a copy and a shadow, a shadow. A, a, and then they focus on shadow. It wasn't really what's up there. I, you know, you, you have to move into a place of make-believe in my opinion um, and philosophy and uh, some Gnosticism, some just these ideas that heaven is just this mystical, really unreal place, which Sean and I were joking about the irony of this, because one of the most popular books in Christianity for a long time has been, been this book called Heaven is Real. And it's a cute story. Don't get me wrong. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a surface level, you know, yeah. cute, uh, you know, it's a, it's an inspiring story, but People don't actually believe that that statement that heaven is real, because when you say real, it's like, well, what do you mean by that? And when you get into the nitty gritty with a lot of these people, they don't believe it's a real place. So if you don't believe it's a real place, then, yes, you're not going to believe Yeshua no. has a literal job. You're going to be glazing over his role as our high priest. None of that stuff's going to be significant to you to 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 cover some of the smaller numbers of people that may be listening that that would probably say right now but wait a minute wait a minute i do believe heaven's real i do well you start asking okay how real are we talking yeah like do you think there's grass in heaven are there animals is there water does that water have places uh indentions in the land where it flows and, and and pools like a lake or a pond or a stream are there mountains does that grass have a seasonal cycle of growth does, how does that work? Is there ecology in heaven? Is there, there microbes in the grass that needs the sunlight to process the photosynthesis? How, what, it, they don't use sunlight, so what light do they process? Right. Yeah. The, Bible, the Bible tells us what light's in heaven. Yeah. It also tells you it's a real place with grass, land, fields, animals, rivers, mountains, Angels. just like you see in the earth below. So, when you start asking people like how real, when you say heaven's real, you, you sure you believe heaven's real, but like how real do you think it's real? Yeah. So when Yeshua comes back on a horse, that usually means a horse has a, is a field to, to be stable in. If not an actual stable, I, I would imagine it's just an open field he can run in. Yeah. But you know, who knows? Maybe there's an actual stable that, that Yeshua who was a, a craftsman. Where did humans learn it from? Maybe there's an actual stable that's built for that horse that he brings back and he comes back on. And maybe that's uh I mean, does that does that horse poop? It's a good, I would I would assume it probably does. How real is heaven? Yeah. 
Like, what are you even calling heaven? Are you calling it some imaginary land that you that you can never truly picture? What if, literally, as the scriptures tell us, the earth that you experience and walk and move and breathe on is literally the same design as the rest of the creation? It's just theirs is un, not corrupted. Yeah, ours is corrupted. So, like, think about your natural inclination when you view a when you go to you know my brother just went to the Grand Canyon. He's putting pictures up on the internet on, on Facebook. It's beautiful, right? Massive Grand Canyon is beautiful. It looks. What does people always say when they see a beautiful landscape? That looks heavenly. Yeah. And when we drive, because we were blessed to live in the West in the Rockies. And so we just have views, 360 panorama views for days. And it always brings out this feeling of, man, God's creation is just so gorgeous. It, there, it always inspires this sense of what God is capable of doing. And the funny thing is that a lot of the mountains and, and formations that we have around here, I'm pretty sure were formed through the flood, through the chaos of, you know, rocks falling upon each other and landing that way. And, and it's still gorgeous. Yeah. When the waters yeah. recede, wow, just this pile of rocks happens to be one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. So yeah, <clears throat> yeah I mean, where does that come from? Imagine that heaven is going to literally come to earth. Right. A piece of heaven is going to come to earth. And then we're going to be taught how to steward the earth so that it doesn't become corrupted like that. Right. So why would that be happening if heaven was this completely mystical, whimsy, ghostly place that wasn't really tangible and physical? So good question. <laughs> you start really digging into testing people's claim. Well, they'll be like, oh, of course, I believe heaven's real. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jesus is in heaven. God's in heaven. Angels mm -hmm. in heaven. Uh, and most people believe their dead relatives are in heaven, too, at this yeah. time. And so they'll be like, of course. Yeah. And, and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And you're like, OK, what are you going to do up there? Yeah. What's life going to be like? Well, I don't know. It's a mystery. No, it's not. The Bible tells you. You're going you're gonna to get a portion of land. You're going to have a house prepared for you. If you get the resurrection, you got you got your own house. He's, he's making you the best crib ever that MTV's never reviewed. <laughs> you're going to have the best crib ever. You're going to have the massive portion of land if you like homesteading. Yeah. You're going to have plenty of, of people to interact with all around you so you can practice his ways, the ways of the Father, and how to love others and interact with people. So just for all those social recluses that have become social recluses, whether it's through trauma, or just through lack of experience in your life, you're going to be given an amazing new heart at the resurrection with the Father's fullness of it on your heart. His laws, which is which is the application of his behavior, his attitude, his loving ways. It's going to be put on your resurrected heart. You're going to have the most amazing, wonderful social confidence to live around other people and, and with your own portion of land and apparently a, a large house. And you're going to be able to interact in Torah amongst these other people, which is the instructions, right? Interact with other people. And you're going to be able to do it in a loving way with full confidence and assurance and rest of mind that they're not going to steal your land. They're not going to break down your fence. Their auction isn't going to run into your, your yard and try to gore your kids. Yeah. That you're going to have true property rights because that's, that's going right. to be your land and you're not going to have to pay taxes right. on it even after the that's house right. is paid off. <laughs> Yeah, it won't be called a tax. It's like a willful tithe that you bring yeah, to, exactly. <laughs> to the priesthood. You're going to um, joyfully want to bring that tithe. Yeah. <laughs> and then that tithe is going to be practically in a most literal, physical, practical way, in turn, be given to people that need it outside the kingdom. That's the part people don't like. That's how real heaven is. That's mm -hmm. the promise of the kingdom come, guys. Is the, Read Isaiah 55. People, the, the general admonition, the city says, come, 
buy food without money, yeah. buy, buy provisions and milk. You know, Yeshua talks about in, in Revelation 22, um, you have the idea of the people living outside the city and people inside the city. Um, and there's judgment that happens in the beginning of the millennial reign. But after the goats are dealt with and the sheep are left uh, to repopulate the earth and live outside the city that's descended from heaven, they're going to be living around that city. They're, they're going to understand how real it is. Yeah. They're going to be there to celebrate the feast days three major times a year next to that city. They're going to get free food, water, provisions, and even medicine from the from the material of the earth, the ecology inside that city is going to be taken and exported outside that city to all the, the survivors of the day of the Lord living around the city that need those provisions and that medicine and that, that water from the river of life that flows outside the city and the food, like they're going to, they're going to be, I mean, and it even says in Baruch that the manna from heaven is going to fall again. Yeah. So that's another crazy concept that people don't even think about like that. Was the manna real? Yeah, I mean, well, we've seen, I directly asked one of the Trinitarians you were debating, you know, if spirits aren't physical beings, how could they eat food with uh, Abraham? Yeah. Oh, well, they just manifested. And it's like, well, what does that even mean? You mean they just pretended to eat the food? I, of course, there's no expounding on that <laughs> response. It's just really a, a poo-poo, a dismissal of the question. Because the question is valid. They came down and they ate human food with yes. Abraham. They ate well, meat and cheese. And also because it was Abraham, <coughs> they ate clean food. Right. Well, yeah, obviously. They they knew yeah. exactly what they were preparing for the angels. So because he was a trained priest. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, we probably rambled on long enough about that um are you ready to open it up for questions sure all right i yeah. know people have been asking a lot of questions while we've been talking um if you're new to the channel our sabbath q a is what we do i know we call it a q a in the title maybe we should start changing the title well, we, we call it first and foremost the sabbath fellowship that's right and that's the right. q a yeah so but the first part of this is always dedicated to us reading from the scriptures and talking about them yeah so we always ask that you hold your questions till the end um i did respond to one question and i got the the infamous be silent woman verse responded to me. That's what I was laughing at earlier. Women are to stay silent in the churches. So I always got to love that when I lovingly answer a person and they're like, silence, woman, do not speak. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, other than that, if you've asked a question and we haven't answered it, it's because we aren't to the Q&A portion yet. So you can put your question again um, now. So we can scroll to it and please put it in all capital letters so it's easier for us to see. All right. <clears throat> and give me one second. Pull something up here. Okay. <clears throat> all right. So first question I'm seeing here is from Sheila, son of battle. Uh, thanks for your question. Is asking, we speak on Tobit 14.5. It says a temple will be, will be built. It says forever. Thank you. I'm guessing... I'm not sure um, exactly your premise, but I'm going to pull this up on screen and try to address this passage for you real quick. Um, yes, the temple will be built, and it's the New Jerusalem that it's speaking about, so that's why it would say forever. But it's um, starting verse 5. And that again, God will have mercy on them and bring them again into the land where they shall build a temple, but not like the first, until the time of that age be fulfilled. Now that's, well, I should say that particular part, is what I would say is a part of the covenants. 
Uh, that's why I, this is my study guide, by the way, for the book of Tobit. It's already, it's already published in our Patreon. Um, and so this is talking about the fulfillment of the covenants where he, he did promise, I will bring you back in the land one more time. But after that, they afterward, they shall return from all the places of their captivity. So this, this time is fulfilled. The second, the, the uh, Ezra Nehemiah rebuilding of the temple is fulfilled. And after that, they shall return from all the places of their captivity and build up Jerusalem gloriously. And the house of God shall be built in it forever with the glorious building as the prophets have spoken thereof. All nations shall turn and truly fear the Lord and shall bear their idols. This is millennial reign. This is during the second temple um, or during, I'm even using the terminology, during the temple that Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt when they were brought back from Babylon captivity, that age was fulfilled in AD 70. And all nations did not bury their idols and worship God. And the house of God was not built up gloriously. It was not a, this is your biggest guys. When you're, when you're looking to discern the difference between um, the fulfillment of different prophecies, because many times, just like in the book of Tobit, Tobit will speak quickly about large gaps of time. So if you're looking to discern what, what's temple is being, is this the same temple being referenced here is up here? Well, this is where you have to look. All nations shall turn and truly, this is the prophecies of the kingdom come. There is no other time in history where all nations stop worshiping their gods and worship Yahweh alone. At no point in the history of Israel did all nations worship Israel's God alone. That only happens when the, when the Son of God comes back, puts, puts Satan in a hole for a thousand years, first and second beast are locked away, the kings of the earth leading people astray are destroyed, all the armies that are destroyed with them, that aligned with them, and the sheep and goats judgment happens, and then the world can live in peace. That's when all the nations are brought from all the islands across all the plain of the earth to the city of God to learn Torah and to abandon their idolatrous ways and to worship Yahweh alone. This is the this is the fulfillment of the kingdom come. So I hope that's a decent answer for you, brother. Um yeah, I'm gonna all right. I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to do this um, succinctly and quickly because um Whenever people ask for us to just address an entire swath of, of scripture, it becomes more difficult. It turns into a lengthy, lengthy answer, and it becomes you know disadvantageous to, to other people trying to ask a question. So I'm going to do my best, Anthony. I appreciate your question to give a very you know quick yet thorough, but it's not going to be very lengthy because we've done entire videos on this. Um, if you can, I've done a video. If you go to our videos tab on YouTube, and it's called um, Did. Paul teach Timothy the Torah, and I go over these verses, but I'm going to, I'll review them real quick for us and uh, put them on, on screen real quick. All right. Okay. So uh, verse three, um, he's just uh, explaining to Timothy what he, you know, the instructions he gave him, um, talking about people and that he's going to, Timothy's going to be around in Ephesus. Uh, that are not worshiping Yahweh, men that are Zeus worshipers, uh, who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, promote speculation rather than the stewardship of God, which is by faith. Uh, the goal of our instruction is the love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have strayed from these ways and turned aside to empty talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not understand what they're saying or that which they're so confidently assert. So now he's talking about competing teachers, if you will, in, in the realm of Timothy, because there was... Um, a lot of people that were turning to Christ. And just like we see today, a lot of people want to be teachers before they're truly ready. That's just what it boils down to. Before they truly study the Old Testament, they want to jump in and start being a teacher. And 
sometimes it gets them in some hot water, mm -hmm. right? Um, so this, so Paul, 2000 years ago, was dealing with the same thing. All right, verse nine, verse eight. Now we know the law is good if one uses it legitimately. That's right. If you're not trying to manipulate people and gatekeep the faith, then you're using it legitimately. If you're teaching people how to walk in love with the Father and the Son, keep the commandments, you're using it legitimately. Verse nine, we realize that law is not enacted for the righteous, but for the lawless and the rebellious. So in this context, if you're enacting a law, it means you're going to start using it for punishment against someone who's transgressing it. The righteous are those who already abide in the law faithfully and they're not transgressing it. They're not expecting punishment. For the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the profane, for killers of father or mother or for murderers, sexually immoral, for homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, anyone else who's averse to sound teaching. Um, so now he's directly explaining all these negative traits that you see, which, by the way, the Torah, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Exodus all speak against these things. Um, these bad behaviors are what's considered unholy, lawless, rebellious, profane, sinful. This is where the law is enacted to punish those or to, you know, control the community because people are acting wild. Right. And and it, all those behaviors are averse, meaning they're against sound teaching. So that just hope hope to can clear that up real quick. Verse 11, that agrees with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I've been entrusted. So. Again, I'm not sure the exact extent of your question of what you wanted to break down specifically or focus on, but we always try to remind people that Paul is emphatically teaching the law of God. Here's a great example because he's calling things that the law of God already mentions, which is in verse 10, all these un these bad behaviors. We see those mentioned in the Old Testament as a part of God's law for right behavior. And he's calling these things adverse to sound teaching and sinful, lawless, wicked behavior. Okay, so he's, he's still teaching Timothy the law of God. Uh, Ivan both is asking about the ontology of the animals in heaven. I'm guessing they're going to be made of water, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, because they could be made of of uh, of flesh of the flesh of dirt if they wanted to, because they existed in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, inside the inside I mean, the garden. Obviously, these horses that Yeshua and the angels come back on, they need to be able to come through the firmament or fly down, uh, descend yeah. down from. So I think well, they they keep in mind angels have picked up humans and fly them around like no problem. So literally, or? yeah, in the Habakkuk and the book of Daniel and Bell and the Dragon and other places like where they would take man one from another, just like when okay. the angels took Lot and his daughters out of the city. So they, they can pick a man up and fly around with them. But at the same time, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just didn't want to. I'm sorry that that's I just want to say that real quick. Ultimately, we can only speculate about that because there isn't a diagram broke down for us in the scriptures. We just know there's clearly animals up there. Yeah. Um, and there's a priesthood up there, so in scripture, it would have to be similar. They'd have to be similar to the animals we have on Earth. And Scripture defines only two ontologies in all of creation. There's the spirit, and there's the flesh or the dirt of the earth, right? Yeah. And in verse 39, First Corinthians 15:39, it even directly tells you there's the different fleshes. It mentions that term, which is consistent with Yeshua in Luke 20, Luke 24, saying, "Touch my flesh," right? Um, my flesh and bone, my spiritual body of flesh and bone, right? So it's it's very consistent. It just, um, there's no no mystery category. And yeah. by the way, for all the Trinitarians watching, we love you. And we just, we want you to actually critically think about your claim. Your claim is that un, uncreated is an ontology. That's not the definition of ontology. That's the subjective philosophical definition, but that's not technically the biblical definition of ontology as far as what's the substance of that created thing. 
um, or the substance of an existing thing. Mm -hmm. I even missed, I even used the word right there as a mistake, right? I even said that created thing, but it's anything in existence. What's it made out of? Just because the father is uncreated doesn't mean he has a different ontology than other things he created. Think about this for a minute. The father before the world began existed. And then he made the ferments, the water, the earth unformed. He made everything that which he then continued to fashion and refine further and further to what we have today. Where did that substance come from? Unless you believe in a Christian version of a Big Bang, other than that, that substance came from within the Father. This is the part that I don't think people realize how water works. Did you know that you can yeah. grow metal inside water with the power of God and water? It's called electrolysis. You can literally grow certain types of copper inside, and it, which is a, a fundamental concept. You can grow different types of metals in water with shooting electricity through the water. So I just want to encourage people that, you know, the father created everything from something, which I believe with literally himself. This is to me will make perfect sense why the scriptures say the spirit of the Lord fills the earth and then the heavens and everything in it. Yeah. Is literally made from his own substance. That's why he could take rocks and raise them up and make right. them up into whatever he wants. Created and uncreated are not ontologies. Yeah, it's spiritual and earthy. Those are the, the two Bible defines. Yeah, we got to use the Bible's definitions of terms. We can't just make stuff up. So spiritual and earthy. Those are the two ontologies and all of heaven and earth. Miranda Robinson is asking a question. I'm confused by the eternal part in Matthew 25, 46. Could you explain, please? Um, sure, I can go look it up and try to address it. Oh, it says the, the goats. Um, eternal punishment, yeah. So, um, okay. Again, I... I know, I know that people are only got so many characters to ask their question. I get it. I'm assuming. What do you think she's assuming? It's about probably this? about the question of hell and being punished physically, consciously, okay. forever. I mean, I don't know what else it could possibly, what other context it could possibly be. So I'll translate for you. I think that's what it is. Okay. So in verse 46, they will get this talking about the goats who are punished. They will go into eternal punishment with the righteous into eternal life. So. The place of eternal punishment is called Gehenna. That's called the lake of fire. And that's where Yeshua says the body and the soul are destroyed forever. There's no coming back. There's no reanimation. There's no eternal life in some destroyed state of perpetual pain and torture. It's a place. The place is never going to go away. The actual lake of fire is going to be there forever. But things that are thrown in it are destroyed. Yeah. And you're destroyed forever. You're destroyed yeah. eternally. Yes. So... That's the difference between the eternal punishment versus the eternal life. Yeah. Because if you have, if you have eternal, if you're punished consci consciously and living as a spirit being in hell, being tortured forever, you still have eternal life. Yeah, it's just an eternal unpleasant life. That's, that's Catholic theology that created the eternal conscious torment idea. Yeah. So the place, this is why I started off by defining the place of Gehenna is called the lake of fire in scripture, Matthew 10, 28. So 15 chapters before this, Yeshua already explained to us, anything put into Gehenna, both body and soul are destroyed. There's nothing else after that. You're done. You're, you're out of existence. You're done. Yep. You don't stick around forever. Um, let me see here. This is First uh, John 5, 7. <laughs> uh, we've, done, we've done passages on this, brother. I'm not going to go into We've talked about the training a lot. We're going to get some different questions. I really appreciate you, Volkswagen uh, Sirocco, Sirocco. But if you go to 
Keenum and Context on the YouTube search bar and type in Keenum and Context Isaiah 9-6. I got an entire video for you directly on this concept. We've done quite a few videos on, and debates and interviews and discussions on the Trinity on this channel. You can just go into our debates or discussions playlist. You can go to, um, like I said, you can go to the Son of the Man, Son of Man playlist. Um, we've, we've got quite a few videos, but specifically, type in the YouTube search bar, Kingdom in Context, Isaiah 9 6, and you'll be able to I'm find I'm dropping that in the chat for you. And also, as far as 1 John 5 7, go read other translations yeah. of that because it only says that in what two translations, and one of them being the KJV, the other one being the NKJV. Yeah. So go read other translations of that because that's. Um, that's not a, as good of an argument as people think it is. The coming day is asking, is it okay to talk about Deuteronomy 22, 11 through 12, please? Just for clarity, I'll bless you, brothers and sisters. Um, and baby Levi. Thank you, brother. Coming day, I don't know if your brother or sister appreciate it. Just one second, though. Um, is it okay to talk about? I'm guessing it's because of the nature of the content. I do know we have some children watching. Um, so I try to, even though we do the poop jokes, I try to, to be... <laughs> Okay, wait, wait. This is before we get to the marriage violations. So this is yeah. about woven together. I think they're fibers. asking, could yeah. you please talk about this? Well, yes, I can. One second here. Um, do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. You are to make tassels on the four clothes of the cloak of your wear. This Deuteronomy is a summation of previous laws already given. So um, uh, Deuteronomy 22.11, I believe, is mentioned in Leviticus, I'm pretty sure. Um and it's talking, if you go read the actual passage in Leviticus, give me one second, let me try to find the, the cross-reference here. It's talking about, um, well, this I guess this passage even says it appropriately, so I can leave it up. I can leave it up. Um, wool and linen woven together. So the only two fabrics that the Father tells you, do not mix these two and make a shirt or pants out of it. He doesn't say about any other fabrics, just these two. So I would, I know there's been scientific studies on how it somehow... Does People something. say there are know, studies. Know, they never post the actual study. I'm not saying there's not legitimacy to it, but I just want to be clear. People have just said that there's studies. Okay. If anyone has links to those studies, that'd be great to put them in the comments for us. Yes. But the um, point is, I'm just, I don't know exactly why he asks these two particular fabrics not to make clothes out of them together. I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, have you ever put wool and linen together? I would think that would be very oh, my goodness. and uncomfortable and hot. Even Maybe. In a cool place where we live <laughs> my goodness like you live in like northern finland maybe but no like there's no reason to put wool and linen together guys yeah. i mean you do not make clothes like that uh you would be sweating that's that's how you drop weight for for wrestling class <laughs> all right so um jeremy 22 12 you're to make tassels on the four corners of the cloak you wear it's also congruent with numbers 15 uh this is an eternal command throughout all your generations and uh i would say yes we, yeah, we make and, tassels and put them on our clothes and sean and i do the traditional you know we have little you know, single tassels that we tie, but there's some discussion over this and what it really signified at the time, because there are some um, depictions of Israelites being brought into Egypt of slaves on some Egyptian, um, I don't know what they call them, some of their, hi yeah, some hieroglyphs, of their yeah. hieroglyphs and stuff. And those Israelites have, it's actual fringe on yeah. the, the hem of their garments. Some of them have it on the four holes of the, so on the neck, the sleeves and the bottom of the garment. So as far as the four corners, yeah, you know, the, what the tassels look like, there's some discussion over what that really looked like. The discussion is on the translation of the word corners. Right. Whether that, that word corners means edges or fringes, which is this the part of the seam, 
for the spot for your neckline, your two arms, and then your body to come out the right. bottom. So that would be considered the four spots where you have a seam or a corner that comes together, not specifically saying you're wearing boxy shirts and, yes. and, and robes and cloaks. Yeah, because Judaism had debated it for so long and they settled on the idea that they needed to have these special undershirts that are cut in a certain way so that the bottom of the shirt literally has four corners. Right. And then they have one tassel hanging on each corner. Right. So, so there's Sean and I keep it pretty simple. We have our little ones that I make for us that we hang you know, where they, where they fit on, my, like if I'm wearing a dress, I don't put them on the very bottom of my dress because they drag and get caught on things and stuff like that. I hang them on my pockets, but so it's, we're, we're honoring the command to the best of our understanding for it, but just be aware that that's a tradition. The seat seat that you see a lot of people in our community wear, that's a tradition of men. Um, but it could have been, you know, 70 style fringes. Yeah. In the future, <laughs> I want to have everything. clothes, our clothes made, uh, with a, with a seamstress. <laughs> To where there's a, a little bit of white and blue in all the little edges of the shirt, the neckline, the sleeves, and the bottom, just as like a little accent to the clothes. I think that would be beautiful. Mm. Um, it may not look the best with certain color schemes, but whatever, whatever. It would be very unique. Statement. Yeah, it's not yeah. about fashion. And, and it's also not about showing it off to others. Right. The fringes are a personal reminder for you. So it's for you to look down. It's for you to see your tassels hanging on you yeah. or whatever. It's for you. It's not to, this is why Yeshua reprimanded the Pharisees for making their tassels long so they could be seen by others. Yeah. It's not to show off that you're keeping the commandments. Mm. It's a personal reminder to you. So a lot of people would say, well, oh, if you don't make them long enough, you won't hang down below your shirt. So no one will see them. I'm like, I don't care. Yeah, I don't care if anyone point. sees them. Like it's for me. It's a personal reminder for me to keep his commands in my heart and my mind every day. Yeah. And it's not for other people to have to see. Um, thanks for the super sticker, Anson. I really appreciate that, man. Thanks for the donation there. Um, we wanted... Why not? We haven't addressed that topic in a long uh, yeah, time. Yeah, I know. I know. Still haven't even done part two. <laughs> now we've addressed this in so many videos. It's not just about identity crisis. Part two of identity crisis is something... Totally, I was just totally different. joking, babe. Well, but it doesn't make sense to the audience. But your statement. no identity crisis is absolutely about it this is, topic. but but part two is not about this. Um, so yeah, I was just I, other videos that. we've done about the actual divorce and remarriage is going to be um, like the kingdom come, the, the bride of Jerusalem. We did kingdom portions on that as well. So playmakers in the faith is asking, brother, I saw your video on divorce and remarriage. How is it that God divorced Israel but was still married unto them? Jeremiah three eight through fourteen. The Hebrew word in verse fourteen means husband married. It's because they're still in covenant with him. They're just dispersed and scattered from the land. That's why it's Jeremiah three is synonymous with Isaiah 50 is that the divorce is not that they're kicked out of covenant and can't repent and come back. The divorce is they're removed from the land. So that's why he can still refer to himself as an authority over them as a husband, as a husband is over a wife, but they're still scattered from the land as was promised in the covenant. If they rebelled against his ways, he would bring upon them, Famine, plague, disease, invasion by their enemies, and then scattering. And this is exactly what happened. Isaiah and Jeremiah both commenting on it. 100 years apart, both say the same things. You've been divorced from the land, but repent. Yeah, and it's divorced from the land because this is all figurative language. Yahweh was never literally married to Israel. They were not literally in a in a one-to-one -one comparison between human marriage, you know, relationship with the father like that, the, 
the, the marriage and divorce language is all metaphorical from the Old Testament when it's talking about Yahweh and Israel all the way into the New Testament where it's talking about Yeshua and the New Jerusalem as his bride. It's all metaphorical. It's figurative language. So there, no one was literally married to or divorced from Yahweh. It's all meant to um, illustrate the relationship between them. Um, and that's why it says he was as a husband to them, not he was literally a husband. I mean, if you read the Torah, there's nowhere in there that says today you are marrying your God. Like it's. They take so, the metaphoric language of the prophets later and then retroactively. Make I know, but it's, 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 for people who like to always say, well, where's that in the Torah? That's one thing nobody ever seems to say on the bride in the bride camp, the divorce and remarriage camp is where did it actually say in the Torah? This is a marriage covenant. I'm marrying you today. You're literally my bride. So, and, and playmaker in the faith, I don't know which video specifically you're referring to. So um, I would highly recommend uh, typing in the YouTube search bar, kingdom in context, identity crisis averted. And, uh, and I go through a lot of the verses that we're talking about today. Yeah. So I don't know if you're re referencing that or some other video we did, because we did a divorce and remarriage. Just recently, just recently a live stream yeah. on the show about human, human divorce, divorce and remarriage. And remarriage. Yeah. So check that out, brother, if you have a chance, or sister, if you have a chance. Um, Elisha E7 is asking, is Shotokan Karate a cult? So I'm going to just bear with me, Elisha. Um, I want to do a, I want to reword your question to be a little bit more accurate so everyone can understand, okay? Shotokan Karate is a specific form of karate from Japan. Um, there's different types of Taekwondo from Korea. There's different types of Kung Fu and Gung Fu from China. There's different forms of martial arts and different names by from which different traditions and tribes and masters created different styles of those martial arts. All of it at its core is the movement of arms, blocking, striking, punching, redirecting of, of people's weight distribution to protect yourself or to aggress. Um, it's a martial art. It means it's a, it's a way of fighting. Okay. Yes. Eastern mysticism infuses a lot of their religious practices into some of the schools of, of karate, taekwondo, gung fu, kung fu, but not all of them. Depends on the person teaching it. Okay. So it, just the fact that it's a martial art is not inherently occult. In the Bible, we see the Israelites training for war. They're doing a martial art. It's just not referred to in the modern lingo of an Eastern martial art like Kung Fu or Taekwondo or Karate. But they're still, all nations are training for war. That's what a martial art is. So when the Benjaminites are, are super skilled with the, with the sling and can hit the hair of a man from 100 yards, that's training for war. That's a martial art. Okay? So in the same way that David had to train to be able to go out and fight an entire day of battle with swords against the Philistines and not get run through with the sword and killed or get his neck slit. He's training for war. He's practicing martial arts to be prepared for battle. But David didn't, it's not a cultic that David had to learn how to do that. Okay. So it all depends on the, the person teaching it and what, if they're infusing any type of spirituality into it, because there's plenty of wonderful Christian brothers and sisters in the faith that teach Karate, Taekwondo, Kung Fu, different Jiu-Jitsu, different types of ways of fighting, martial arts that have no mysticism involved, no spirituality involved. They're, they're believers in Christ, but they understand self-defense is a necessary part of this life. So uh, hopefully that's a decent breakdown for you. 
Searching for truth is asking our tithes, food, or money. It can be both. It depends on how far away you live, where the temple is. The context would determine that. Um, it can be food. It can be money. It just depends. I know a lot of people like to make the claim, well, it's all just agricultural is your tithe. Yes, but if you live too far away and couldn't bring your livestock or your your produce because you live too far away and it was too far of a journey, you could exchange it for money and then bring it to the temple and then do with it of the three ways that you could spend it once you got there. So it can be both. It just depends on the context. Yeah, also, I think people forget that there were more professions than, right, than just, just you know agriculture. agriculture or shepherding. Like there right. were people who didn't own flocks of animals and people who didn't have fields of produce. That's right. So. Nice girl V is asking, what role will the Levitical priest have in heaven? Um, they won't. They're there. The Levitical priesthood and that covenant to Levi and his descendants is given to mortal mankind. So the heavenly priesthood that's going to be inside the kingdom of heaven that sits down on the earth, that's going to be the Melchizedek priesthood. They're both going to be doing the same law of God. Yeah. They'll okay. So let's clarify. Um, when you because when you say in heaven. That means literally in heaven. So maybe you're asking during the millennial reign when the kingdom of heaven is on earth. The they'll have the same role that they have that we read in Leviticus in the Torah in the five, the five books. Yes. Um, they'll be mediating between the mortals who survived the day of the Lord but didn't take part in the first resurrection. All those survivors who are going to be coming to the city, they're going to be coming to keep the feasts that's right they're going to be coming to learn the law so the levitical priesthood is going to be mediating uh, on their behalf and this is why we have in isaiah 66 it says at this time that new levites and priests will be chosen mm -hmm. okay and i'll i'll go ahead and start reading this um in verse 19 probably is the best place to start so if you read here in isaiah 66 19 it says, I will establish a sign among them. I will send survivors from among them to the nations, to Tarshish, Put, and the archers of Lud, to Tubal, Javan, the islands far away, who have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. So they will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all of your brothers from all the nations as a gift to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons and mules and camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring an offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And I will select some of them as priests and Levites, says the Lord. So this is telling you from amongst the mortal survivors, after the kingdom is set down, there's going to be envoys sent out to gather all the nations back to the city because they all need help. They all need clean food, clean water, and medicine. All these people have survived the day of the Lord and the 42 months of the reign of Apollyon. They need help. Yeah. <laughs> so they're going to be given refuge. And out of those who are brought back, he's going to choose new priests and Levites who minister amongst mortal mankind. This is what Hebrews 5 talks about where a priest is chosen from amongst his brethren. And so this is why there's two different priesthoods. There's one for those who are, um, well, I should say this. Now that the, the priesthood was given to Levi in the days of uh, Levi's life, like Malachi 2, 4 through 7 talks about, all of his descendants going forward have the honor of that position, to be priests to Yahweh, ministers to Yahweh on behalf of mankind, and they're respected and given that position to share in the Lord's portion in that regard. But once you're resurrected, you're not technically of this. You're not mortal anymore. And you're now, as the promise goes, you're just like Yeshua was. You're put into a Melchizedek priesthood, which is a different 
a different priesthood for a, for someone that's now immortal, if I could put it like that. Um, it's the original, I should say it like this, it's the original priesthood. Because this is the same priesthood that the angels taught Adam, who then taught Enos, who then taught Mahalalel, who then taught Enoch and all those guys. And it passed all the way down to the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then was passed down to Levi. Technically, Levi was a Melchizedek priest, but then the, the nomenclature, the terminology then became, because the promise, once Levi received his priestly position passed down from Jacob in the Melchizedek priesthood, then the father made a special agreement, a special covenant with Levi and said, going forward, all specifically your descendants, because remember at that point he had 11 other brothers. Mm -hmm. Who's going to get the priesthood after that? Yeah. So then he, the Lord decided, okay, instead of we're going to just choose Levi and his descendants to have the priesthood on earth forever. So that's why when the kingdom comes, there's glorified, resurrected, immortal saints living inside the kingdom but there's still mortal mankind living outside the kingdom. We're going to come to the kingdom to learn the law of God, to, to get refuge, free food, water, and medicine. They need a priesthood amongst their own brethren. And this is why the Levites are still there. The people inside the kingdom are glorified as Christ was. They've taken part in the first resurrection. They're, they're given a higher authority than the Levite priests outside the kingdom. And so they're also in a priesthood that will minister to people outside the kingdom as well. So basically, guys, the survivors of the day of the Lord, they get like a double blessing of having two different classes of ministers of God that are working on their behalf. And I don't I'm guessing the angels will still be involved. Yeah, they're so not gonna three, wonder. Three classes, yeah, they're not gonna be wondering and speculating about oh, who was this Melchizedek? And oh, you know, there's not gonna be any question of uh, what was going on with that priesthood in Genesis? So anyway, it's just it's nothing but added blessing to the people who need it the most. <laughs> added blessing. All right, Cynthia Andrews is asking where is where in possibly Enoch does it say only male angels are in heaven? What translation? It's not an Enoch sister. It's in the Book of Jubilees, chapter fifteen, verse twenty-seven. So all angels are male. All angels are created circumcised at their creation. Um, this is in the context of Yahweh explaining circumcision to Abraham in, Gen in Jubilees chapter 15, verse yeah. 27. And I'm not saying that this bothers you, Cynthia, but I think there are some, a lot of feminist-minded women out there that it bothers them when you say it's only male, angels are only male. To me, I look at that and I'm like, that means that human women, females, we are truly a unique creation. You know, like we're special. We're... <laughs> made from the rib of man. Um, there are no heavenly beings like us until we're resurrected and become like the angels. And then at that point, we're also still a special creation because we're resurrected females. Right now, there's only one resurrected man. So I think that is something that I think makes us special and unique and not like, oh, left out or wasn't important enough to have female angels in heaven. You know, I mean, yeah, it just means we're we're super special. <laughs> All right, so we got two. We're going to take these two last questions um, because they're related to each other. Okay. okay, I'm sorry, guys, if we couldn't get to all of your questions. There's more than we can get to today. Mountain Mom is asking, "Is there sin to millennial reign?" Yes, it's yep. the mortals outside the city who survived the day of the Lord. Those who Yeshua judges as sheep in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, and they're going to repopulate the earth throughout the millennial reign. 
and they will still be mortal, meaning they're still going to struggle with sin. That's why they're going to have two whole priesthoods mm -hmm. to confess their sin to and to bring propitiation and make atonement for them. And so, um, and to also learn the law of God from those priesthoods so they can get better at not sinning to live out in faith and belief until they die. So they can take part in the second resurrection. That's the promise of the covenant to mortal mankind. Do the commandments of God and he'll give you life. He'll, he'll you'll live. Second question is from Eric Navarro who asks, we will, Will we have to work or do we do we be able to enjoy a new life? Thank you. So in the kingdom coming, I'm guessing you're asking about this in the relevance of the kingdom, kingdom to come, heaven and earth. Your work is not going to be clocking in at a job, whether it's working for an insurance company or Wendy's flipping burgers or working for a stockbroker or whatever. It's not that type of work. If you're shingling roofs as a construction guy, it's not that type of work. Your work is to be in a priesthood in heaven. And the roles of a priest is someone that goes out to the people to help them with whatever they need. Like he's a minister. First and foremost, he knows God's law. That's why you're promised that at the resurrection. Ezekiel 36 and 37. Um, Jeremiah 31. You're going to get God's laws on your heart at the resurrection. Okay. That enables you as a personality, as a person, to go out to the mortal mankind outside the city, teach them God's law. That is a type of work. It's just ministry, ministerial work, right? It's it's the work of a priest, of a minister. Also, the priests can get down and dirty with people if they need to. If they need to help them build a wall, if they need to help them uh, create medicine, if they need to help them uh, show them how to properly slaughter an animal so they can so they don't get disease or whatnot. There's all types of practical life skills that... Um, that the resurrected saints will be going outside the city to interact with the people, to teach them how to live properly so that it's most beneficial to them and they can walk in love and peace. It's not going to be the hamster wheel rat race that most of us get stuck in, in no. this world. Um, we're going to be working for the Lord yeah. and that we're also told we rest in the millennium. So imagine the kind of work that you'll be doing where you don't feel like you're just a slave to some system working and if you die tomorrow they're just going to look for someone to replace you like it's it's going to be such uh it's going to be such holy work but it's not going to feel like work it's not going to feel like oh i don't want to get up and do this again tomorrow it's going to well gonna it's, be, it's going to be joyful it's like it's like yeshua says in matthew 12 right if you're if you're um your donkey gets stuck in a well even if it's sabbath you go get him out yeah. right because you're not working for the sake of profit you're like you're you're helping people you know so Metaphorically, all the people that survive the day of the Lord that Yeshua judges as sheep, and they're they're going to be living and populating the millennial reign, their donkey's stuck in a well. They need help. They're in a dark hole. They can't see the light very well. They can't get themselves out. They need to be taught the law of God so they can walk in right behavior. They need to be helped rebuilding the cities of the nations because all of those are going to be destroyed, guys. I can't remember the exact verse right now, but there's a prophecy in Isaiah where it talks about um, you will go out and rebuild the nations. And so... If you like construction work, guess what? There may be an entire team dedicated of people to go out and do construction work. There may be an entire team dedicated of people to go out and help people learn how to, to create new pottery and new dishes and um, do new new types of, I don't even know if it's going to be classical electrical work. It may be some you know, advanced type of technology that yeah. we'll, we'll know as resurrected saints to be able to help people with a, a better way of clean, efficient, free energy. Um, building a bunch of Tesla towers or something. I don't, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but the point is that the work you're going to be doing is not just you can 
you can pad the pockets of some corporate conglomerate. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You're working to help people establish civilization and live in peace with one another. That's the simple work of creation of God, how God created us. And then that's the simple work we do to maintain that in stewardship and teach others how to do that and live in peace and love with each other. So that is not work by definition of the world. The world does not view that as work. They have no respect for ministers who go and do missions work and dig wells for people or give medicine to people. They have no respect for that. They don't think that's actual work. Yeah. If you're not making fat cash and stacks of money in the world, they think you're not working. But Yahweh's priorities are different. He doesn't care about the money, the jewelry, the cars, the whatever, the clout. If you're if you're just helping people to him, that's good work. You're doing good. Does that make sense? Even in the body of Christ, there are people who don't view um, teaching the word as work. Right. Um, you know, they they'll look at somebody who spends the majority of their time studying the Bible and teaching it to others, um, you know, and say, oh, you know, why? Why would you have a PayPal link up there for people to donate to you? That's just evil to ask for money. You're not that's not a job. Sorry. Have you read? any of Paul's work because <laughs> that's one of the things that the father calls his people into is to teach other people. I mean, how will they learn if there isn't someone there to teach? So yeah, even in our own body, we have some problems with what people consider legitimate, you know, legitimate work. Well, there's a, a strange cultural condemnation on the idea of, you know, the body of believers giving to someone that's feeding them spiritually. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the Lord. And that's why Paul has to address in 2 Corinthians 9. He says, look, I, I build tents among you so that I wouldn't have to. But he goes, I do have the right, since I'm preaching the gospel, to take some sort of, you know, donation from you, collection from you, yeah. because I'm, I'm teaching you something that took me time to learn. And then he goes on to say, just as he gives a, a principle from the Torah, mm -hmm. and he says, just as you would not muzzle an ox while he's treading the grain, um, similarly, you know, it, it's people that do go out and teach the word of God have a right to make a living off that because there's that's where they're spending all their time. Yeah. So this is literally the pattern you saw in the old Testament for the priests. You know, the priests weren't, yeah. they weren't given a portion of land so that they could, they were, they were given plots of areas to live in within the other tribes lands. And then the food that was brought in from the tithes and the offerings and the sacrifices went for the priests and their families to eat. So they depended on people following the law of God so they yeah. could be sustained. Yeah. Like it was an interconnected system. And those people, their responsibilities, like I've been describing, one of them first and foremost was to teach the law of God to people. So there was a trade of effort yeah. uh, for everyone to be sustained. Which it kind of makes me chuckle now that I look back on my life as a new ager, because I and lots of other people in that crowd place my own sense of judgment on pastors and preachers and churches. And, oh, you know, the, the love of money is the root of all evil. Why do they ask for it at church and all this stuff? Meanwhile... There's psychics and spiritual gurus and people doing Reiki. And I mean, I'm paying to go have someone do right. Like I'm you're, paying you're, for wait, spiritual wait. services. Well, hang on. Not so, now okay, when so I was an unbeliever. Be, cl be clear. Be clear. So, I, I started the whole thing okay, about yeah. that. And I don't care if someone comes in and cuts it because that would just be dishonest. People who watch our channel know. Okay. I'm just, not so a you're new not paying for anymore. that stuff now. But, Back okay. then I placed judgment on Christians who, you know, who were supported by their congregations, but I would turn around and go pay, you know, charlatans basically to, you know, do spiritual work on me or read my tarot or things like that. So it's just funny, you know, the hypocrisy yeah. in the unbelieving mind where you think you're, you're so self-righteous about, Oh, 
they they ask for money at that church over there, but then you go right around and you know pay some psychic lady to give you a bogus reading that she's getting well, from unclean spirits. In in similar ways in ancient cultures, like we talked about the martial arts <laughs> earlier, right? Where they would have a different uh, clan that teach a different type of martial arts, and there was a there was a sifu, there was a master that that was the instructor over those peoples, and they paid that master. Yeah. So like you see all these old Chinese movies and, and Japanese movies where there's like warring clans of martial arts schools and they always had their own house they went back to and they all lived there and it was almost like a big large temple area. They paid for that. <laughs> the people yeah. went to pay that instructor to learn martial arts from that person. And he paid him usually a pretty hefty sum in order to, to live with him in that house, to be sustained by that master and to and to learn what that master had teached, both the philosophy and the practical fighting. Yeah. So this was this is you know this is not an uncommon thing. Like even in the scriptures, you see the women supported Christ's ministry from their own financial money. Christ Himself, yeah, <laughs> He accepted money to go and minister around, do what He needed to do because He couldn't go to His regular job. Yeah, so, someone asked, didn't well, did he did Christ didn't Christ not work? Didn't he just wander? Well, what was what was preaching and teaching the gospel is that not the lord's work yeah he's again that's why i was saying the world doesn't view yeah. ministry as work yeah they have this this you know financially motivated idea of if you're not making actual money buying a new house buying a new car buying jewelry if you're not chasing clout or, or fame then you're not doing any kind of work but that's the opposite priority that's the that's a inverted priority from what the father views is yeah. true work which is this idea of like, not just your vocation to make money, but if you're going to minister for him and be a minister to the Lord and do his works, yeah. right. Then that's where it becomes different. He has a different value system real quick. Speaking of the work, speaking of work, we have uh, two people making, and I know they're just making jokes. And I think it's funny too, that they're saying in the, in the live chat, Oh, if we go to heaven, no more construction, please. Like, I don't want to <laughs> possibly these guys have done construction in their life or been driving through it. And so, um, but think, but guys, just just think about this for a minute. What is what are you promised in John ten? Jesus promised his disciples that you will do greater miracles than he did. So when you're glorified, resurrected, and you have the fullness of God's laws in your heart, and you're filled with the fullness of the Spirit at that time, and you can have the 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 gifts of the Spirit just flow out of you like no problem. Well, one of the gifts of the Spirit is miracles. So. You think that you're going to have to literally put every nail in every, I mean, you may choose to, you may choose to, to cut every board with a saw and put every nail in and pick every block back up and remortar it. Or you could be like that guy at the end of the X-Men apocalypse movie where he's just putting his hands up and there's just blocks moving around. You just put the building back together. You're just like, Jesus, what Jesus say? If you say that mountain moving in the sea, he'll do it. Yeah. Or that guy in Florida who built a whole castle with just frequencies. Point is not only are you going to have, more power flowing through you from God's spirit to, to manipulate the creation, which is wisdom of Solomon, 1624. The creation bends to the will of people that are right, faithful in God who do the commands of God. This is why Jesus exemplified it everywhere he goes. So you're, I, I, something tells me you probably may not have to pick up every, every two by four hammer, every nail and put every joist in place on your own. Not only will you be working amongst the other people, but at the same time, like something tells me, you're probably going to be able to impress these people because you're a glorified immortal under the authority of Christ who gets to go out into the nations and help them rebuild stuff. And it makes perfect sense. If you've got a whole bunch of buildings in New York or Chicago that all fell on top of each other, you may need to move that mountain into Lake 
Lake Michigan, you know, you or whatever, or just dematerialize all those, all that rubble. You may need to do something with the power of God that the average person can't do that suddenly an entire group of resurrected priests will have the power to do. So the millennial reign is not just going to be sitting around doing nothing. You're going to be helping re replant, if I could put it like that, replant the world. And then once it's fixed, then you got stewardship over it. It's not going to be boring. It's going to be beautiful. Amen. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Anthony Bates, for the super chat. I really appreciate that. There was a sticker that came through too. And Joyce, thank you for the super sticker. Or jo you. Joy Cons. Joy Cons. I think I'm saying that right. Thank you so much for the super sticker. No, we do not have a 501c3. No, no, we don't. Um, not that. All right, guys, we appreciate everything you do. Uh, you guys are awesome for being here. We appreciate it. Uh, we had almost 300 people here at one point. At least that's what it shows us. Yeah. Apparently, it's even more than that. But as far as like not people, everybody's in the chat, people interacting in the yeah. live chat. Um, all right, guys, you guys uh, hope you have a good day. If you're observing Shabbat, enjoy it. I know some people are already they're they're already in the next day across the world yeah, but over. but um and if you're not celebrating shabbat and observing it every week i just highly encourage you to take a look at it it's a beautiful thing i mean it's like such a blessing um uh zonch zonchanch zonchanch can you say that zonchanch thank Z you for the Zon thank you for the super chat thank you for the super chat i really appreciate that man <laughs> um yeah, I'm 22 weeks today. Continued prayers just for no complications and against the spirit of fear for me and worry and all of that. Um, if anyone has birthed at home with a midwife, I'm sure you know that if they're licensed, you know, they have certain rules that they have to abide by by the state that you're living in. So it seems like each week I find out another thing that could cause me to not be able to have my midwife assist me. And so I'm trying not to dwell on those things and trust that the Lord will bring everything in the proper timing and make, make for us, you know, make it so that we can have the home birth that we would like and not have to be transferred to a hospital. So prayers against worry for that for yeah. me would be very helpful because I don't like getting into that headspace where I think about all the what ifs at the same time, you do have to be educated. You know, I want to be educated on all the things that can go wrong. So I know what my options are in those situations. So, but of See, course, that's what I told you this lady in the live chat saying she birthed at home unassisted. Yes. I know that women have done that. I am not comfortable doing that for my first birth. I'm just not, I haven't done this before. I'm just not comfortable with it. I did just buy a book that was recommended to me about birthing at home unassisted. So I'm going to read through that and maybe that that book will give me the confidence I need to not worry, you know? Um, but it, you just, you never know. And there can be things that go wrong. And so I just, the education process <clears throat> brings for me some uh, peace of mind, but it also brings some concern and some worry. So um, we're going, we're, we're, shooting for a home birth with our midwife to assist me through it. And then maybe by the second time around, I'll feel confident that well, I hey, wouldn't what, need a midwife. So if there's some weird legality where she can't be there, maybe we, we got that big bay window in the kitchen. She can just stand in the yard and look into the window <laughs> and then I can be in there catching the baby. And then she can just like, I keep telling you, it's not about catching. It's about monitoring and what to do if I'm like bleeding heavily after like there's things, babe, that you can't handle. 
So it, for me, it's, you know, it's about the, you know, the parts of this that I don't know how to treat and deal with if something were to go wrong. And we all know that things can go wrong during childbirth. So no matter how you prepare for it. And women clearly were using midwives in the scriptures. So yeah. it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not that God didn't give us this ability to, as women, to help each other go through this process. So next time I might look into birth keepers or traditional midwives. And, and those are apparently women who aren't licensed and beholden to all these state rules. So I just didn't so, know about that. We've already paid not, paid halfway for her anyways. Not, so. My mom is asking about this specifically. Can we sign refusals to take the fire off the midwife? We haven't asked her that question. We can ask her that, but she definitely hasn't volunteered that information. No, it, there she her hands are tied in certain situations where she cannot assist me, and she has to recommend that I be. Now I can say I'm. You're not transferring to the hospital, and I'm not going to go. But she will have to clean her hands, wipe her hands of things, and say, "All right, I have to step back. I can't legally assist you further." So, if you guys could just pray with me that, you know, things will, for a lot of women, it goes the way they want it to. And they have the home birth that they desire and they have the assistance that they hired. And so I'm praying for that kind of situation for us, that it'll just be, you know, um, as smooth as possible. I know it's still a, a painful, <laughs> powerful experience. Um, but yeah, just prayers against the worry for me. Cause I'm definitely educating myself. I'm reading lots of books. I'm trying to you know, I'm watching lots of positive uh, home birth videos and things like that. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to navigate this with as much knowledge as possible. But as many of you know, with much knowledge can come some worry. So yeah, if you could just, that's my prayer request for the week, basically, is just help with my mind and the spirit of fear that sometimes can creep in on me. Uh, thank you again, uh, Zonchanch, for the uh, super chat. He's saying, praying for your home birth. We just recently went through such a great one. We have midwives to help, and it was so great. Ten months now, it was the best experience by far. They have awesome. five kids. Congratulations. Seems. Congrats. That's, That's awesome. awesome. Five kids is awesome. Thank you for the encouragement. I need the home I need the home birth encouragement, you know, that, hey, things went well for us. <laughs> I, need, I need to hear those stories. Do you need to hear the hospital birth horror stories? No. Okay. And that's what, that's what so many women in this modern world are inundated with. And that's why we're taught to fear uh, birth and to think that it's just immediately a medical emergency. So no, I am deliberately not uh, watching any videos about traumatic birth experiences or reading any of those stories. I'd rather not. <laughs> so yes. Thank you. Yeah. I've, learning about good positions to be in. So we, we'd like to have the little birth pool and all that. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you so much uh, for your support, kind words, and just being here to listen to us talk about the scriptures because we get a joy out of it. Um, people always ask us, or people not always ask, people often, often make a comment saying, why don't you pray in your shows? Well, guys, we're not, we pray before we go live. Yeah. We, we pray throughout the day. We pray. We prayed today already before we turn on the camera went live. We prayed twice about our words and how we're going to speak those today and hope that the father uses us to speak those. We do this every time, every time yeah. we don't pray for a show. I'm sorry. We, when we pray, we, we don't, there's no one here with us. Literally, obviously you guys are with us in, in the live chat. You're here watching, 
you're on screen. We see you're typing in the text, but we, we can't hold your hand, right? So it's a little different dynamic. The person I am here with, I do pray with her, but we don't televise that. We don't, yeah. we don't make this a big deal. You know what I'm saying? But just for everyone listening, rest assured, we pray before we go live, before we do shows, we pray continually that we have the wisdom to speak the truth and that God uses us to be heard by people. And so it impacts their life and their discipleship and they're edified by what we do. All right. We do pray. Yeah. We just, you just don't we see just it. We just don't make a show of it. That's all. So thanks guys. You'll have a great day. Enjoy your Sabbath and uh, we'll see you. I think tonight I'm going to do a call-in show. Ooh, late so, so like a later, later at night, if you guys that are all the night owls. So. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye -bye, guys. Love you. Shabbat shalom.